Please open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. I'll give you extra time. Hosea is the gateway to the minor prophets. So get past the thicker sections of prophecy. And you know when you get into the minor prophets, if you flip the pages too fast, suddenly you're in the Gospels. And you're like, what happened? There are no minor prophets. By minor, we mean shorter books. They're not less important. And... Certainly, I hope to accomplish two things this morning. One, to give you an appreciation for how important this book is. And secondly, that you'd be moved to study it this week as a means to prepare your heart for Resurrection Sunday and and Good Friday. The New Testament writers and Jesus himself quote from Hosea often. So I know we feel sometimes intimidated by the prophets and the minor prophets especially. There's a tendency to kind of skip, skip past them. But you'd be missing out on so much if you did that. And this, this book especially focuses on God's loyal love for His people. This special kind of love that we don't Understand, it's, it's not the way that we love, and it's the way we should love. Hosea's mean, uh, name means salvation. There's some parallels here with, with the New Testament in Jesus' life. Yeshua, Jesus, God saves. Hosea, salvation. Hosea was prophesying to people preparing them for the coming judgment. Preparing them for the coming judgment. And God used Hosea's ministry to help the people understand how devastating their sin was, but at the same time, reminding the people how faithful God is to His people, even His rebellious people, that yes, discipline is coming. And it's going to be horrific. And yet, God will not completely do away with His people. He's made a covenant with them. When God reveals Himself to Moses and describes who He is, remember when He puts Moses in the rock and covers his eyes as He passes by? He talks about a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And this word steadfast love, this word hesed in the Hebrew, we're we're going to talk about that word today. But John the Baptist came, preparing a way for Jesus, letting people know judgment's coming, and to prepare your hearts, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus preached repentance And when he returns, that awful day of the Lord, indeed, is coming. And so, 
there's parallels here. This is a good, really good book to study this week as we prepare our hearts for Easter. Hosea is a prophet in the northern kingdom. Israel, remember the northern kingdom's called Israel, even though it's all Israel. You'll also see in the book of Hosea, Israel called Ephraim, which was the largest tribe in the north. So that helps with some of the confusion. What's this Ephraim? Why is he always talking about Ephraim? That, that's just synonymous for Israel, the northern kingdom. He was a prophet. His ministry lasted a long time. It went through the last six kings. Four of the last six kings were murdered by their predecessor. So it was a, it's kind of like once, once momentum started heading downhill, it was, went really, really fast. He began his ministry during the final days of Jeroboam II, and for a little brief period there, Israel was experiencing peace and prosperity, but it was this false peace and false prosperity. The country was just filled with moral and spiritual corruption. And when people are experiencing some kind of peace and prosperity, they think everything is going well and they have no idea of impending judgment. And so God would send his prophets to wake people up and shake them out of their slumber. Assyria would overthrow Israel in in 20 years, which I'm sure at the time just was like unthinkable to Israel. They felt too strong and too confident and too prosperous. Remember when we looked at the book of Jonah, God had sent the prophet Jonah. So Jonah was a, a close contemporary of Hosea and Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the largest city in Assyria, and the people repented. And remember we said perhaps one of the reasons Jonah was so angry that God granted repentance to Assyria, to the Ninevites, was that it had been prophesied that God would use them as the rod of judgment against his idolatrous people. If they hadn't repented and God wiped them out, then there would be no Assyrians to come over and and punish God's people. Jonah is, or sorry, uh, Hosea is also a contemporary of Isaiah, who prophesied in the south, and Amos and Micah. In order to understand this book well, because God's going to get real personal with us today. I had trouble preaching through this first service because it, it just tugs at your emotions. It's meant to. You need to understand that there's different words for love in the Hebrew and it makes it difficult to translate into English. You can never tell which lo- word for love you're looking at because we have one word, love. And we use it for all kinds of things. I love my wife, I love pizza. You know, we throw the word around and it begins to lose its meaning. The most common word in Hebrew for love, ahav, it's the love of preference and inclination, the thing your heart is just naturally inclined towards. And you can use the word ahav for I love my wife and I love pizza. It, it, it works in both contexts. 
But God has told us in Deuteronomy 6.5, the great prayer of the Jews, the Shema, Shema, the verb listen, obey, Shema Israel. Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh is your God, Yahweh is one. Weahavta, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It should be the inclination of your heart, your preference. You should preference God. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's, it's a love of, of preference. You should love him more than anything else. And then we have the second word for love, chesed. It's, this, uh, it's so hard to translate. It, it gives translators fits because there's so much wrapped up in it. It's God's faithful love, His covenant love, His loyal love, His merciful love. And you'll see Hesed translated as compassion, mercy, loyalty, loving kindness, steadfast love. You're like, well, which is it? Yes. It's all of that and more. And you get an appreciation for the fact that that's not how we love. And most often, the Bible will describe chesed love as God's love towards His people. You don't really see it being used as people's response to God. Because we're not faithful. And our love is fickle. We do love one another in God like we love pizza. One day, it's our favorite food. The next, eh. Not this week. It really separates God from us. Many things separate us from God as far as He's otherly. He's, he's not like us. We're made in His image. And so there's elements and attributes that we have in common with God, but then there's things that are particular to God, His omnipotence, His omniscience, these kinds of things. But this Hesed love is particular to God. Nobody loves like this down here. Third kind of love, uh, Raham, we're going to see a lot in the book of Hosea too. It's a compassionate, merciful kind of love. It's often translated compassion or mercy. Or sometimes they'll just put love. And it's difficult in our English Bibles to really get an understanding of the different flavors and shades of meaning that come out in the original. So I guess that's the job of the preacher to help you. The book of Hosea is so different from any of the other prophets. All the prophets talk about God is king, and we've disobeyed his commands. We've rejected his authority. We understand this. And we've heard it so much that there's a tendency to almost grow cold in our disobedience. And so-and-so became king, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so-and-so became king, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so on, and so on, and so on. till we have that attitude of like, hey, we're all sinners. And it, it, it cheapens 
God's great gift on the cross. So how can God help us to understand how devastating our sin really is? It's an offense to his chesed love, his, his faithful covenant-giving love, that he never abandons us, he never leaves us or forsakes us. He's chosen us out of the world to be his own people. He chose Israel to be his special people, and under the new covenant, he chooses us to be his bride. And we don't bring anything to the table except a big mess. He brings the faithfulness. He brings the power. He brings the security. He brings the cleansing. He brings the blessing. This God who loves us like that, how could we so easily stray from Him? This is the idea He's capturing in the book of Hosea. It describes the pain and suffering caused by Israel's rejection of God as their king in terms of the metaphors of a wife rejecting the covenant love of her husband and of a child rejecting the unfailing love of a parent. And I put pain and suffering in quotes and cause in italics because God is condescending to our level to help us understand. It's not that He's in heaven suffering because we won't love Him the right way. We, that's where our minds naturally go. And it wouldn't be wrong for you to think that way, but don't stop short there. You know, if somebody was unfaithful to us or our kids are unfaithful to us and, and they don't listen to us, our immediate response as selfish, sinful people is, woe is me. How could you do this to me? Everything I do for you. When our response ought to be, I have their best good in mind and they're settling for less. They're settling for sin. And when you think about that in terms of God, you should be more concerned when people sin against you that first and foremost they're sinning against God. Yes, it hurts and it's terrible and it's painful. But in our sin, we are rejecting God's goodness and His faithfulness and His love. It, it's, it's sad. But God has His hessed love for His people. And unlike us, where we have some kind of limit where we finally say, all right, I'm done with this person. I am so done. And we don't have this kind of hessed love in our culture anymore. People throw away relationships so easily. Friendships, marriages, church family. Well, if that's the music they're playing here, I am so out of here. I mean, there's a, there's a time when painfully and humbly God calls us to separate. But we think that's the first option. And so we're going to see in the book of Hosea God's 
covenant love for His people and they transgress against Him over and over and over and yet He still continues to reach out to them. On some level, we've, we've all experienced rejection. This is going to tug at some heartstrings this morning. It's, it's intended to. God intended to, to choose those human experiences that transcend all other human experiences to help us understand and shake us out of our slumber of how devastating our sin really is. And yet we need to be careful that we think rightly about God this morning. So before I dive in, I, I need to teach you about a doctrine of the church that's kind of been lost. It's not talked about very often. That's called the impassibility of God. And if I taught on it thoroughly, we'd be here for months. So I'll try to be brief about it. The impassibility of God is the doctrine that God does not experience pain or pleasure as a necessary consequence of relating to others outside the Godhead. He, he doesn't have to be hurt because we rejected Him. You don't, and I don't have that kind of power over God. He existed before we ever did. He's always existed. Our life doesn't change Him. Yes, He relates to us in very real and intimate ways because He chooses to relate to His creation. But He's different from us. His emotions aren't so fickle and He, he doesn't blow up in anger. And He's not hurt and woe is me, they won't love me. He has all the love He needs within the Trinity. Nathan uh, made me aware of this quote from A.W. Tozer, and he said it was a paraphrase, and I'm paraphrasing a paraphrase. It's like making a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. So sorry, Tozer, but it goes something like, the most important thing about us is what first comes to mind when we think of God. You think right thoughts about God, that's a good thing. You think wrong thoughts about God, that's terrible. That leads us astray. And so we need to think right thoughts, biblical thoughts about God. A few decades ago, the process theologians were really popular. They said God was in process. And they thought that was a bigger view of God, that He changes as He relates to us, as He learns new information and responds, it's almost like an evolutionary view of God, that he's maturing and changing. That not that a more fuller view of God? And all that does is take the godness away of God, from God and makes him like us. It's always been that way since the fall in the garden, to make God more like us and make us more like God, until eventually we're more God than God and don't need him anymore. So be careful of any thoughts of God that would turn him into a glorified version of us. It's, the doctrine of the impassibility of God is closely tied to his immutability, that he doesn't change. And aren't you glad he doesn't change? Aren't you glad there's one person in your life whose love for you isn't fickle? 
as close as we are in our human relationships, and no matter how wonderful your marriage or your relationship with family might be, it's up and down, up and down. God is love and chooses to love. And those He places His love upon, nothing can change that. Amen. It seems like the Bible, though, does present a God that has emotions. And yes, God has emotions, but they're not like ours. Where do you think we got our emotions from? Emotions aren't evil. One of the ways we differ from God is that we're, we have a body. Yes, God the Son now has a body, a resurrected body, but there's no sin in that body. God is spirit. Somehow our emotions are tied to our body chemistry in ways we don't fully understand, but you know when you're emotional, your body's very involved. And sometimes it really feels like you can't help but be emotional. I can't help it, I just start crying. When I was little, I cried a lot. Not as a whiner, but when I felt injustice, I could feel the tears welling up and I get so embarrassed and you want to find a place to run and hide because you're not supposed to cry when you're a boy. And boys can be pretty ruthless when they see the lip trembling and the tears coming. They've got you. And they're just going to lay it on thick. But I tell you, as ruthless as boys can be, girls, whew, they can be so mean to each other. Guys will just punch each other and then shake hands. Girls, taking hold of grudge a long time. Amen. <laughs> I wasn't asking for amens, but they're coming out. By the way, this doctrine of the impassibility of God is one of the areas where we disagree with Wayne Grudem. We like to use Grudem's systematic theology. He doesn't affirm the impassibility of God. I guess in our current culture, we're big on authenticity and we want to think of a God who's authentic with his emotions. The impassibility of God doesn't turn God into some deistic, robotic God who doesn't feel. It's just that his emotions are different than ours. We have to understand that they're different. And when we see God presenting himself in the Bible with what looks like human emotions, he's doing us a favor. He's condescending to our level and giving us something we can work with and understand. When the Israelites make the golden calf and God tells Moses, I am done with these people. I am just wiping them out. It, it's for Moses' behalf. And Moses says, oh God, don't, don't wipe them out. And he intercedes, don't wipe them out. What are people going to think of you if, when they hear that these people that you rescued out of Egypt rebelled against you? It's, it's going to diminish from your name and your glory. Don't wipe them out. Have mercy on them. God's love. All right, for you, Moses. Wink, wink. Teaching Moses a lesson through human emotions. Because it wouldn't be too much later when Moses is the leader of Israel and they reject him as their leader. He's like, I'm so done with these people, God. 
And God's like, hey, remember? Oh, okay. Be merciful. God has emotions, but not like ours. He chooses to be intimately involved with us and expresses that involvement in terms we can understand. He chooses compassion, love, disappointment, anger. We are passable. It's got that root word passion in it. Because we react passionately to other people, often sinfully. God is not passable in that sense. His, his emotions aren't a visceral response to us. It's a conscious, sober-minded choice. And as we are redeemed in Christ and grow in Christ-likeness, we can have control over our emotions too as we become more like Christ. An analogy that I read from Kevin DeYoung, he was talking about when his son gets frustrated playing with his Legos and I can't find this one piece and he's digging through all this and he's losing it. And at that moment, he says, as a father, I can choose to enter into my son's frustration with him. And of course, all analogies fall short of but they're helpful for us to understand God. In that, in that picture, God's more like the father who's not like, would you knock it off in there? He's like, oh, my son is struggling, and I love my son, and I will enter into his frustration with him, and I'll be frustrated with him. And then we'll find the Lego piece together, and, and, and we'll choose to grieve with those who grieve. like Ruthie does at Grief Share. So I'll, I'll enter into your grief with you. It is a very Christ-like, God-like thing to do, to choose to willingly put yourself in a vulnerable position to interact with people's emotions. On the surface, it seems like I would like God better if He was more like me and had emotions like me, but when you, when you stop and think about it, it's so much higher that he would choose to enter into our world with us. Now, he's, he's not aloof from us. He wants to be intimately involved, but he's not intimately involved in such a way that he's, he's controlled by us. That he just responds and flies off the handle to, to our disobedience. And at the same time, we can't manipulate him with our obedience and with flattery. Aren't you glad God's not like that? Because we do that to each other. But it doesn't work with God. And people live their life like this. Even people who call themselves Christians. God's angry with me this week. I don't deserve his kindness or his goodness. Woe is me. And they walk around and it's really just a pathetic attempt to get people to feel sorry for them. Or then you have people walking around being like, how could God not but be pleased with me? Have you seen my life? And it's not the way that works with God. That's the way it works with people around us. But God is otherly. He's, he's not like us in that sense. So, well, what happens to God's love then? You know, we're so used to love being this. Our culture has elevated love to this pure, visceral, 
heartfelt, gushing, I can't help but love you. And sometimes when we sing worship songs to God and we speak of His love for us, that's how we think of it. He just couldn't help but love us. No, He chose to love us, even though we were unlovable. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. His love isn't fickled. It's grounded. It's fixed. When he decides he's going to love someone, that's it. No one can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't subtract from his love. It exalts his love. God's love is freely given, this from Kevin DeYoung, through thoroughly unmotivated by any need or deficiency in him. God does not feel inner angst, agony or distress. He does not love in order to relieve the suffering he feels on account of our suffering. He chooses to love because he is love. In the triune Godhead, there is a constant fullness of mercy, joy, and goodness to which we cannot add and from which we cannot subtract. God always acts out of overflow, never out of want, never out of lack. I need some more love go find some people to love here on earth and fill up my love tank. No, that's what we do. And that's selfish. God's love gives. And He wants our love to give. What about God's suffering then? Does does He ever suffer? Do we grieve Him in such a way that He suffers? Is He he broken hearted in heaven because we won't love Him the right way? Is He sitting by the phone and weeping because we won't call him back. With divine impassibility, the incarnation is not a revelation of the eternal suffering of God. Jesus came in human flesh. He took on humanity, but he was still fully divine. And we rightly say that Jesus revealed to us the Father, but not the elements of his humanity that he took on. Did Jesus suffer? Yes, But that wasn't a picture of God the Father suffering. This was a heresy rooted out of the church in the 6th century, patropassionism. This view that God suffered while Jesus was suffering on the cross. We see this heresy played out at the end of the Passion of Christ, the movie, when a teardrop falls from heaven. No, God wasn't suffering in heaven. Why won't these people love me? And look what they've done to my son. He was pouring out his righteous wrath on his son. He sent his son in love, and his son agreed to come out of love for the Father. I know it's tempting to think of God in that way. And for a moment, it might even motivate us to be more obedient. I feel so bad that I've broken God's heart. You think too highly of yourself. You broke God's heart. He's not some love-struck teenage boy who falls to pieces because his girlfriend dumped him. Don't tap into those emotions. Did it get you anywhere in your human life to tap into that emotion? No, it just leads to self-pity. 
Jesus' suffering on the cross is the deepest expression of God's gracious character, whereby He chose in love to suffer as one of us. Our comfort in the midst of suffering is not that the Father suffered with the Son, nor that God continues to suffer with us. Our profound consolation is that moved by love, God the Son, in perfect cooperation and agreement with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, laid aside His immunity to pain so that He might suffer for us as one of us. You'll have to chew on that all week. It's, it's, it's deep stuff. Jesus became a man precisely so he could experience human suffering, the book of Hebrews tells us, so that we don't have a high priest who's unsympathetic to us. But God the Father did not suffer when Jesus was suffering on the cross. With that as our background, we go into Hosea and we want to be cautious with how we view You're not going to see in Hosea God saying, I am so sad that you rejected me. It's more that God is saying, I am so sad for you. You're the one missing out here. And you do it over and over and over again, and you miss out on the greatest good for cheap, tawdry, sinful imitation. In the book of Hosea, God reveals in very human terms that His people ought to grieve over their unfaithfulness by walking a mile in God's shoes, considering what it would be like to have an unfaithful wife or rebellious child. So He's going to use those two metaphors, and aren't those very powerful metaphors? Very powerful. But we're the unfaithful wife and the rebellious child. I want you to be careful this morning. It's so easy to put yourself in the role of the victim all the time. And if you're not careful, you start thinking about your, your own spouse as unfaithful because they didn't cook your eggs the way you liked them or didn't give you what you thought you deserved or don't pay, doesn't pay enough attention to you. And same with your kids. They're kids. We expect more from our kids than we expect from ourselves sometimes. How could you do that to me? Everything I do for you and all the sacrifices, and because they're kids, they're learning to be unselfish. You've had 30, 40, 50 years to practice. What's your excuse? So God asked the prophet Hosea, I thought I had a hard call, but he asked this prophet to go and marry a woman that is going to be unfaithful. He tells him ahead of time, this woman is going to be a harlot. She's going to sell herself into prostitution. And the shame and an honor-shame culture that that's going to bring on Hosea, and she's going to do it again and again and again, and God is going to say, you continue to pursue her. And this will be a living picture of my relationship with Israel. They cheat and they cheat and they cheat. And instead of stoning her to death as the law requires, I give mercy, chesed, steadfast love. 
So God is, is like the husband. Israel's the, the wife of harlotry, and the foreign nations and idols are the adulterous love partners. And again, we, we can take this lesson, we can bring it into the new covenant, because in the new covenant, God's made covenant with us. Christ is the groom, we're the bride, and every time we sin and we're tempted by other women, so to speak, or other men, I should say, tempted by other men, it's hard for me to say that as a man. Okay, we're all like the adulterous wife, and we're Tempted to think the grass is greener over there with that man. That is what our sin is like. That's what our idolatry is like. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Harlotry, 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 three times in a row, in rapid succession. I think the ESV uses whoredom. This is very raw, graphic language. Hosea's name means salvation or deliverance. His wife, Gomer, her her name means completion, as in the iniquity of Israel is complete now. The cup of wrath is, is ready to overflow. Jezreel, their first son. He says, name your first son Jezreel, which means... God will scatter. I'm going to scatter these people because they won't unite under God's headship. And then they have a daughter, and he says, I want you to name this daughter Lo-Ruhamah. It's got that root word, Ramah, that third form of love, that compassion, pity, mercy, love. He says, name your daughter not pitied. How would you like for that to be your name? It's it's a living testimony of judgment to the people. God's been merciful, but no more. And then they have a third child together, Lo-Ami, not my people. You're my people, but you treat me like that I'm not your God and that you don't want to be my people, so I'm going to let you experience what it's like to not be my people. Part of God's judgment, His wrath of abandonment, letting us have what we want. You don't want to be God's people? I'll let you experience what it's like. You think that husband's better? Go right ahead. God's so good. Before you get through the end of chapter 1 of Hosea, He's already letting people know the judgment won't last forever. There will be restoration. He says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Even though he just used this very graphic picture, this this Hosea's third child, naming him not my people, he's saying, but you're my people. You'll always be my people. I've made covenant with you. I made covenant with Father Abraham. He picks up on that covenant language. The sons of Israel will be like the sands of the sea. Remember, he tells that to Father Abraham, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves one leader. That's messianic language. 
and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. He, he uses the Lord will scatter in a positive sense. Uh, I'll sow seeds and cause them to grow, and there will be goodness and prosperity. Israel's idolatry, so, is like harlotry. And he tells the people in chapter 2, contend with your mother. It's kind of courtroom language. Bring, bring the evidence forward that your mother is guilty of harlotry. This, this is language that you bring people forth before they, before they were stoned to death of adultery. Contend with your mother. Contend, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Very graphic. I'm not going to read the rest of the passage because it gets more graphic. We'll get down to verse 4. And also, I will have no compassion, no rahmah on her children, because they're children of harlotry. They're not my children. Now, this isn't God literally saying He's going to abandon children. He's saying the love child of Israel mixing worship of God with worship of foreign gods and the love child, that syncretism. It's not my child, He said. That's not my worship. That's not my religion. I'm not blessing your mess. In... in we're syncretists, unfortunately. We, we want to be true worshipers of God, but we bring in secular humanism into our home and we think like atheists or we think like Buddhists sometimes. We bring that kind of Eastern religion into our mindset and we bring that secular humanism into our mindset. We treat God like He's some kind, like we're deists. Like he's some far off God that we don't pray to. And then we complain about our life down here and we, we, we go to God and say, help me. And he's like, it's not my children. It's not my mess you created. I'm not going to help you nurture that child in your home, that false religion. And yet, again, God is quick to remind His people, though, unlike you, I won't break my vows. Yes, there will be discipline. But there will be a day, He says, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi, Ish, husband. Ishi, my husband. And you will no longer call me Bali, which means my Baal. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness, there's that word chesed, and in compassion, there's that word raham. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. You know, in Lamentations, the verse we all love, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning, new mercies I see. That, that whole section is filled with chesed and ramah. Or sorry, raham.
Isn't that beautiful language? God will betroth us to him forever. He'll choose us as his bride and betroth us in chesed love, unfailing, unending, faithful covenant love. Even though he knows we don't have chesed love to return to him. One day the faithful remnant of Israel will rightly respond to God's love. Hosea 2.22, and the earth will respond to the, to the grain, to the new wine, and to the oil, and they will respond to, respond to Jezreel. So he's using Jezreel in a positive sense now. I will, I, will, I will sow and scatter good seed. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained com- compassion. So he'll undo the low ruchamah instead of Someone who's not pitied, it'll be a people who is pitied, who, who God will have mercy on. And I will say to those people who used to be not my people, I will say, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. This verse is quoted in the New Testament a couple of times. God will say, you are my people, and will say back, you are my God. At one point, Hosea's wife ends up in the slave market. And God says, I want you to buy her out of the slave market. Can't imagine being required to do this. This wife who's cheated on him multiple, multiple times. She's, she's a harlot in the town. There's got to be men who slept with Hosea's wife, who Hosea has to pass in the marketplace. And that look of... Shame, not on their face. Hey, how's your wife, Hosea? He says, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and they love raisin cakes. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Barley was the price you paid to buy a prostitute out of slavery. They were so low on the totem pole that barley was the price. Some commentators think that the homer and half of barley may have added up to 15 more shekels of silver, making the price 30 pieces of silver, the price of buying a slave, the price that... Judas sold out Jesus. But I wanted you to focus on the word raisin cakes here. If you, if you read out of the King James, you're confused right now because your translation says flagons of wine. It's a bit of a mistranslation. Wine's made from grapes. Raisins are made from grapes. Better manuscripts that we have available to us, raisin cakes, is, is the idea. And raisin cakes were used in the kind of orgiastic worship of pagan gods. You would worship the god through temple prostitution, getting drunk and eating delicacies like raisin cakes. And so God, in essence, is saying, you've left this faithful husband behind, this husband who loves you, chose you, protects you, provides for you, gives you everything you need, for a raisin cake. 
for a raisin cake. You would give all that up for a raisin cake. I ask us all to, to think this week what our raisin cakes are. What is that thing in your life that really you trade in God's covenant love for a raisin cake? Are we that petty? Old joke about a man who approaches a woman in a bar and says, would you go home for me for a million dollars? And she's like, wow, sure. And he said, how about ten dollars? And with indignation, she slaps his face and says, what kind of woman do you think I am? And he says... Madame, we've already established that. Now we're just negotiating price. That's us. That's the picture God wants us to see of us. That is what we're like. For a raisin cake, I would stray from God. Love my raisin cakes. God has so much better for us. And we stray for so little. God calls us to repentance. Come, Hosea says collectively, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn And He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Commentators are split on whether this is true repentance, because it sounds like it. But when you get to verse 4, what this may actually be describing is how empty and vain Israel's repentance often is. Hey, the Lord's good. He'll take us back. He's so quick to forgive. Never truly feeling the full weight of their sin, and so they come back, but not really. They came back on Sunday to worship, and by the time we got home, we've already forgotten Him. Because God says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty, your hesed, is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. It just burns off and evaporates so fast. You think you have hesed love for God and you don't. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. I have to cut you to pieces by the words of the prophet because it's the only way you'll listen. When you get to chapter 11, God changes the metaphor to a father and his child. He says, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. You know that verse from Matthew. Matthew quotes it. Referring to Jesus. But here it's referring to God calling Israel out of Egypt to be his son. 
And the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. This very touching parent language. Yes, Israel has rejected me like a, like a rebellious child, but it's my child. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. Reminds me of the words of King David when his son Absalom died. Now remember, Absalom rebelled against his own father and tried to kill his father to take his throne. And when his men report to David that Absalom's dead, they thought David would rejoice, but David rips his clothes and cries out, Absalom, Absalom, my son. And his men are confused, and they're like, how could he, how could he grieve for this people? Because he had acid love for his son. David the prefigures Christ for us. He, was, he wasn't condoning all the evil his son had done, but it's his son. And when Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and looked over Jerusalem, he cried out in the same way, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, I've longed to gather you to myself like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you wouldn't come. You wouldn't listen. This is, the, this is the picture of God. His love for us is such that it's not that He is hurting because we won't come to Him. The, the hurt's for you and I. Why would you settle? You know what you're missing out on. This is why David can say in Psalm 32 after he sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against Uriah, sinned against the entire nation, he says to you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. Like, how could he say that? Because the full weight of God's hesed love, that God chose him to be king and anointed him and gave him his Holy Spirit and all the blessings he gave David, that he traded that all in for a night of adulterous passion and then covering it up with murder and lying to all of his people. Just the weight of what he forfeited and he cries out, Give to me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Oh, please say, I didn't miss out on the greatest good ever for raisin cakes. Yes, my sin was horrible, but what was worse about it was I completely lost sight of who you were and your love for me in my sin. I convinced myself I deserved immorality, violence. What was I thinking? What kind of man am I? This is what draws us to repentance and draws us to our knees and lifts us to great heights at the foot of the cross. Oh, this amazing love, this amazing grace. Oh, what a cost to buy me back out of the slave market of sin. Hosea 6.6, 6, God's 
What does God want from His people? What does He really want? He tells us. For I delight in loyalty, chesed, rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Of course God wants us to obey. Of course He wants us to obey His commands. But He wants us to do it out of chesed love. Not obligation. Not out of fear of punishment. Though certainly that that should be there. But with this attitude that says, disobey my God, my Christ, my husband. Why? Why would I want to do that? He's so good. He's so loving. His ways are so good. His mercy is so tender. His provision so complete. Why would I stray from that? That's what God wants from us. This echoes 1 Samuel 15.22. Remember when Saul, King Saul, disobeyed God. He didn't kill King Agag and didn't kill all the, slaughter all the sheep. And he lies and he says, well, I kept the sheep around so I could sacrifice to God. Liar. And Samuel says to him, inspired by God, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Look at the parallel. I delight in chesed love rather than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. You can sacrifice and go through the motions and it means nothing. Cain brought an offering too. It wasn't accepted by God. God wants obedience from a heart of chesed love, a heart of trust in God's character and in His goodness and as a response to His love for us. That's the kind of obedience. Isn't that the kind of obedience you want from your children? Yes, I want them to obey, but I'd rather them not obey out of fear of punishment. And, and I hate the, the, the rewards, you know, and you got to do that when they're little and the, the stickers on the... And blah. Just want them to... To obey because they love me and trust me. But that takes time. You've got to build relationship with them. But hasn't God done the work necessary for us to love Him in that way? He doesn't need to twist our arm. He doesn't need to conjole. He doesn't need to manipulate us with them. Just, why wouldn't you want to love this God? When the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, these were people who sacrificed for God and were very good. So God must accept them. And we're very fond of telling people you are not very good and so God rejects you. When Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners who are ready to repent and ready to receive God's forgiveness... They say to him, how could you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard this. He said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. Ouch. That is like the greatest insult. Somebody could say to the teachers of Israel, hey, go look up this verse and go figure out what it means because you don't have a clue. 
And he quotes Hosea 6.6, and everyone would know this verse. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Or some Bibles say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or some say, I desire loyalty and not sacrifice. What's up with all the different words? Because it's the word hesed. I desire hesed and not sacrifice. Go learn to love these people the way God loves you. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And the problem was that the Pharisees couldn't admire a God like this. These people disobey and they cheat on you and and you keep forgiving them? You're only supposed to be nice to the good people who keep all your laws like us. First of all, you don't keep my laws. Secondly, you don't do it with a right heart, not out of love. You do it out of pride and self-righteousness. And so, in another passage in Luke, the one you're more familiar with, when they ask him, how could you eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's when he tells the story of the prodigal son. And he, he puts us in place of the prodigal son. Told your dad, I wish you were dead so I can have my inheritance now because hanging out with you stinks. I don't love you and I don't really think you love me. Give me my money now and he goes and spends it on prostitutes and drunkenness. And he's out of money and his friends scatter because they weren't really friends and he winds up in a pigsty. And he says, maybe if I go home, my dad will let me live like one of his slaves. And boy, did he peg his dad wrong. The dad can't wait for his son to come home and runs to meet him and hugs him and kisses him and gives him a royal robe and sandals on his feet and a royal signet ring and throws a party. And then there's the other brother. Like the Pharisees. Oh, that's disgusting. How could you let your son mock you in this way? And by the way, I've been here the whole time and I've done everything you've asked me to do. Where's my party? Neither brother understanding chesed love because it just wasn't part of the culture. And honestly, it's not part of our culture either. And yet, this is the way God loves us and this is the way He wants us to love Him and to love others. And we can't do this on our own. But He's given us the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can begin to cultivate and practice chesed love Love that says, I will continue to love no matter what. Because God loves me no matter what. Imagine the way the people in your life will respond to you when you know you love them in that way. The freedom, the security. And people can be authentic and be vulnerable knowing I'm not leaving. I'm here to the end. Father, thank you for loving us with chesed love, that your love isn't contingent on our obedience or our good looks or our good name or our talents or our accomplishments. All of that is filthy rags. Cleanse us from our self-righteousness and teach us to love the way you love for your glory and our good. Amen.